Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to a brand new episode of Second Take Cinema. As always, my name is Jamie Evans from Impala Films, and joining me, as always, is the inimitable Rory Jocelyn. Hello, everybody. How you doing, Rory? I'm very good. I'm uh, not a blonde myself, but I am I'm teal, so... I'm close. Atomic Teal. Atomic Teal. That's, that's actually not a bad name. That's a terrible name. I call myself Atomic Teal. Atomateal. Atomateal. Ah. Oh. See, it's just ruining it. Atomaturquiz. <laughs> <laughs> this all getting cut. Oh. So today, we are journeying to ye old year of... 2017, I think, this film came out. Sorry, I, I, th- I, I, I thought 1989 because that's the year it's set in, set. but yeah. I think 2017. It might be 2016, actually. I should have checked Is that. it that late? I thought it was 2013 or something. Oh, God. Is I it? I don't know. Let me have a look. Oh, phone's going off now. You're looking... 2017, you're right. 2017. Look at you with all the facts. Yeah, well, you like know. Like you've done some research and shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I don't know how fast this like I do with GMP. <laughs> Um, so we are journeying to the year of 2017 for Atomic Blonde, yeah. uh, directed by David Leach, starring Charlize Theron, James McAvoy, Toby Jones, John Goodman, Sophia Boutella, and Bill Skarsgård. Um, I picked this one, didn't I? This was you mine. Did. I put in the thing. Um, so you're so, going to have to explain why. <laughs> well, so I first saw Atomic Blonde... Um, I want to say two years ago. Right. Um, I watched it because, one, it's a great title, Atomic Blonde. I really like the... I really like that. Nuclear energy has nothing at all to do with the plot. Nope, nor her being all. blonde, because she has multiple um, hair colours in it. Yeah, but at least the blo- at least she's blonde for most of it. That makes sense. Well, it's mostly platinum, Atomic. It, really? The only thing Atomic has got to do with anything is it's set in the Cold War. Yeah. Like, other than I mean, that, to be it's... fair, they probably took the name from the original comic. No, they didn't. The original comic is called The Coldest Night. Right. Yeah, Atomic Blonde is an original wow. title for the film. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, maybe Atomic Blonde was like the name of a chapter or something. Maybe. So I watched this because of the title and because I, I do like Charlize Theron. And I was like, cool, cool, yeah. We can watch Charlize Theron. And when I first saw this film... I hated it. Hated? Um, I was so unbelievably bored by it that I actually checked out halfway through. I just ended up... I remember just To the point where I didn't actually know how it ended because I was so busy just playing on my phone. Right. That I missed the whole film and then was like, oh, I guess I've seen it. That's a bad habit because you do that every now and then on VGMP. When we were watching Maximum Damage. This is Maximum Maximum Surge. Maximum Surge. We were all getting the name wrong there. In my defense, Maximum Overdrive is the name of another film. I don't think there is another film called Maximum Damage, is Is there? There probably is. But. Yeah, but it's not Maximum Overdrive. It's not Maximum Surge. Do you know what Maximum Overdrive is? No. It's the only film directed by Stephen King. Right. Um, right at the height of his cocaine binge. Oh, gold. <laughs> and it's it's about killer trucks. Oh, right, okay. Like like 18-wheeler yeah, trucks. Yeah, yeah. And the main one, I don't know how they got this through, 
Uh, they had to pay a lot of money to Marvel, I think. And obviously, this is the 80s, so this is before Marvel. Marvel would never let them do this now. The main truck has got the Green Goblin's face on the front. Oh, I've seen pictures of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. got um, Emilio Estevez in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I in a lot of stuff in the 80s. Uh, oh, yeah, he was a big deal in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Breakfast Club. Yeah, Repo Man. Repo Man. Um, <laughs> You're uh, saying that Saint name Elmo's like you don't fire. know what I'm talking about. Though. I know Repo Man. <laughs> yeah, you it's do. Him and Paulie Shore, isn't it? I don't know who Paulie Shore is. He's dead now. Well, but that's why I'm No, no, I'm thinking of Encino Man, I think. You might be thinking of Encino Man. Repo Man. But I know he did a film called... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one uh, about a guy who drives a car around with nuclear... Something nuclear in the trunk. Okay. Which, ironically, is again, back to this film. The one thing this film didn't have, despite being called Atomic nuclear. <laughs> Um But yeah, I was really bored by it. Um, and I watched this again last night, um, and then through a weird twist of fate, I've actually ended up watching it again tonight with you. Yeah, because I hadn't watched it yet, and I can't watch it any other night before recording. Yeah, well, we ended up deciding to move recording up. We weren't meant to record yeah. for a few days yet. Um, so that's why I picked it, because I felt like I hadn't given it a fair shake the first time. Sure. Um, you had never seen this before, had you? No, it was one that was always interesting to me on my list of things because it had a kind of uh, a punk vibe to it uh, at certain times and it's very colourful. So it was one that I had always wanted to see but i just never gotten around to it. So, yeah, for me it was kind of like a thing to tick off my list. See what uh, I feel. Are you familiar with the director David Leach and of his other work? Uh, watch John Wick. Yeah, he's an uncredited co-director in John Wick. Yeah. Which is really odd. Yeah, yeah, because you'd imagine that for something as big as John Wick, he'd want to be credited. Mm. Um, I, I would love to know the story of what happened there. There's probably some sort of legal issue or something. See, the legal, or he wasn't satisfied with the project for some reason, asked to have his name scrubbed out, and thinking that John Wick may not become a big property, and then it yeah. just exploded. Yeah, um, maybe. But, I mean, we won't know. I'm, we, I'm shooting in the dark and guessing. Yeah. Um, it, it could be um, any number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, he also made Deadpool 2. Yes. If, yes. You've, if you've seen Deadpool 2? I've seen two? Deadpool 2. It's all Not right. as good as the first one, is it? No, it, it, it yeah. It, the first one had a lot to say. Um, and I, th- I don't know if it will age particularly well, because a lot of it was taking the piss out of the fact that the studio wouldn't fund it very much. But obviously, as, at the time, it was like, yeah, screw Fox, we're not giving it enough money. But as time goes on, people will just be like, why is he talking about the budget? Yeah, when people forget that context. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he also directed the Fast and Furious spin-off film, Hobbs and Shaw. Right. Which I haven't seen. Have you seen that? No, but Hobbs and Shaw just sounds like a, a couple of biscuits. And he also did Bullet Train with uh, Brad Pitt in it, which I have seen. Um, So, for let's dive into it. Obviously, um, as we say on every episode, spoilers ahead. So, if you don't want Atomic Blonde spoiled for you, stop watching. Uh, But basically, this is a Cold War era spy thriller set in 1989 on the eve of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, It it begins with uh, a man named James Gascoigne getting murdered. uh, And a watch is taken from him, which has secret documents in. And then the film is kind of told in a weird double timeline fashion where we have Charlie Theron after the events of the film telling the story of the film to Toby Jones and John Goodman 
great who, actors. Great actors both. Uh, Toby Jones is her boss for MI, in, in MI6. Yep. And John Goodman plays their CIA liaison. Yep. Um, I think it might be a contractual obligation that every Cold War film has to have Toby Jones in it. He seems to be in a lot. We watched on VGMP, our sister show, we watched Tetris very recently, and he's in that. I kind of half expected when Toby Jones first came in, he was like, so, the contract's for Tetris. Mm. <laughs> I was like... Did you notice the bit where they were playing Tetris in this? No, I missed it. Oh, there was a bit where they're playing Tetris, yeah. <laughs> what were they playing it on? I don't know. You can barely see it. It's just look, it looks like a computer. Oh, like an older... Yeah, okay. But it's the full colour music version. Uh, I, I reckon that's a... a it's a, obviously a homage to Tetris, but it would have been wrong for 1989, as yeah. we know from the Tetris film. Yeah, I think it's an anachronism. Yeah. Um, Not that anyone listening to this would particularly yeah. give a shit. Uh, but basically, <laughs> in the main timeline, she is sent to Russia, uh, to Germany, sorry, to Berlin, um, because Gascoigne had this document called The List, which can, that's the MacGuffin of the film. Yeah. It can expose every secret agent. I think working. it's every MI5 agent, isn't uh, it? Yeah. Um, and I think CIA as well, because that's why John Goodman's got such an interest in it. Right. I thought I, he was I, there because of the special relationship. I, I think it's basically every agent on the ally side. Uh, and they've already sent an agent in called uh, David Percival, played very well by James McAvoy. Yep. Um, but they are concerned that James McAvoy has gone native. Um, and he has, hasn't he? Like, he, he very well, much enjoys the chaos yes. of Berlin. The the thing is, I'll, what I'll say about that straight away, and this is kind of a spoiler for the ending a little bit as well, um, all the events as they're told, like, as, as you say, there's the bit where we're seeing Charlie Theron tell John Goodman and uh, Toby... Toby Channel and say Toby Maguire. That'd have been a very <laughs> different actor. Uh, she was. She's telling them about the events before, like after they've happened, and then we see the events transpire the way she explains them. What's there funny, is. A, there is. Funny if it was Toby Maguire, because imagine she'd be like, "You sent me into a hornet's nest. You knew it was the KGB had made me before I even sat down." And he'd go, "I missed the part where that's my problem." <laughs> <laughs> Little Spider-Man ref for you yeah. all there. Um, but yeah, basically, um, we there is a... And it does come up in this film. It's one thing I will give the story some praise for as well. The idea of the unreliable narrator. So we don't actually know if in the reality of the series, of, of the show, Percival really did go rogue because yeah. it's kind of exposed in the opposite way at the end. Yeah, but we don't know that till the end, obviously. No, 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 of course. Uh, I'm not usually a fan of this sort of setup in a film. Well, you know that she won't die because yeah. she's made it That's to the thing. tell the story. Yeah, in a, I think a spy thriller is not the right genre to have that narrative set up. Yeah, it's, I mean... It's, it's like, imagine a James... I mean, I know by now there's been enough James Bond films that we know how they're all going to work. But imagine if in Doctor No... It had been Sean Connery telling the story of Doctor No. What to M? Yeah. So Bond, how did you get to here? Where yeah. You? You'd be like, oh, well, we know you survived the mission, so yeah, who cares? So I mentioned the um, unreliable narrator side of it. You were saying that you don't like this format, where it's yeah. you think this is the wrong genre for that format. Yeah, I didn't think it was necessary, really, either. Although, as you say, I guess the twist wouldn't work without that unreliable narrator aspect. Yeah, it, it it's a double-edged sword, because 
I mean, I don't know, because like, it still would have had the twist. It just wouldn't have had the twist of, oh, everything we've been told could be bollocks. You know, it would just be a case of everything that we've seen so far has been twisted. The film tries to pull several twists. And I'll be honest, I don't think any of them really work. I, uh, as in, none of them caught me off guard. The film's strong suit is not in its plot at all. No, it's. Um, I feel that this film is very much style over substance. Oh, 100%. Um, it's not a deep film uh, by any measure. The twists try... Uh, I will give them that, that they, they do try and keep you on your toes and keep you guessing. The problem is, is for me, where the plots kick in, they're a bit obvious. And maybe that's because the, the, the actual series that they're basing it on is older than the script. The, obviously, the film's 2017, but that wasn't when the original story was written. Yeah. I'm guessing, I think, was it 93 or something? I or, don't know, I don't I know. I think anything. it's a lot earlier. Um, but... Yeah, you've got this whole aspect of, you know, this, the, the, the twists are a little bit obvious for the most part. And then when it gets to the bit at the end where the twists aren't particularly obvious, they seem unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, because we've gone through what is otherwise a straightforward action film, and now they're throwing in twists. But it, 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 this, is another, this is one of them films where it feels like it doesn't know when to end. So the th- twists just seem to be thrown in there to extend the timeline. And again... Possibly because it's accurate to the comic, but it just felt like there was three endings. Yeah, I get that. I felt that as well. Um, it feels very much like the film should end at the bit where she says, what do I wear for my dinner with the Queen? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a callback to the beginning. Yep. Uh, it ends that sequence that we've been with, that narrative device that we've been with for the entire film. Yep. That... The ending bit very much feels like it could have been filmed months later, yeah, and tacked on. Yeah. Like, who knows? Maybe it or was. Maybe the endings. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it was. Maybe they showed the film to a test audience and it tested badly, so they stuck a new ending on it. That yeah, they must have done that two or three times if that's the case. I don't know if it was because there's like two or three additional endings. Because there's you've got the ending, which is what should I wear for my dinner with the queen. You then have the next ending, which is where she turns out to be. The actual undercover agent who's yeah. screwed everyone, not Percival. Yeah. Which then completely like rejects the storyline she's told, which is the unreliable narrator. She then murders all of them, and then it's just like, right, I'm I'm now going to be which the one I can, to, I to can, go off and sell it. Basically, I can imagine that being uh, a reshoot after a test audience because I can imagine the test audience being like, oh, but Bremovich wasn't because otherwise Bremovich is never. Wrapped up, up is he? Yeah. So um, I, okay. So I can appreciate that as possible. But then, so that's that's additional ending. So that's the second ending, and then there's at least one more ending, which is then John Goodman. Yeah, where she suddenly decides to waltz onto a plane, like in completely different costume, completely different day, completely different style again. Jumps on a plane with John Goodman and it's just like, by the way, I'm American. See you later. Yeah. Let's go home for the CIA. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like three endings, and the John Goodman ending doesn't really add anything. Except to give John Goodman's character a bit more to do, I suppose. Mm. Um, and the second ending just feels like a way to. Oh, we, by the way, we forgot a villain. I feel like maybe the. I feel like maybe it originally had the Goodman ending. Yeah. Without the Bremovich scene, because the Goodman ending also calls back to the beginning as well, because it calls back to the cocksucker reference. Yeah, the Bremovich murder scene I doesn't really that, call back to anything, no, does it? I reckon that was added in because. 
a test audience were like, oh, but he never gets wrapped up. Comrade Satchel's never wrapped up. That's a good thing, because that would have also made sense, because she's not... Yeah, because that, that would explain why she's getting in the plane. You know, what do I wear for my dinner to the que- with the Queen? She's dressed in something completely different as she walks to the plane, we assume maybe to go and see the Queen, and then we see it's John Goodman taking her to the CIA, and that wraps up all the callbacks from the beginning. Yeah. So actually, yeah, the, I think you're right. The They've done an unusual thing then, because usually when they add an extra ending, they stick it right at the end. Usually. But in this case, they seem to have separated, like, the the, the end, like, they've yeah. split the ending in two and wedged another scene in the middle. In the middle, yeah. Um, in pay. Yeah, I mean, again, we're both guessing because yeah. it could have been be originally written that way. Yeah, it'd but be interesting it, to look up the original graphic novel and see how that ends. Yeah, but it definitely has that vibe. Yeah, definitely has the vibe of an add-on. Um, um, but let's so let's talk about. I want to talk because I don't think you can talk about this film without bringing it up. Uh, let's talk about the cinematography of the film. Beautiful uh, by Jonathan Seller. Yeah, or Seeler. I don't know how it's actually pronounced. It's S E L A. Okay. I would guess Seller. Seeler. It could be Seeler. Um, <laughs> and th- this film... So I originally didn't like the look of the film. And there is part of it that I still... I like a lot of colour in film. Mm. Uh, this whole film, even in colourful scenes, feels a little desaturated. Very much in tone and in keeping with how most Cold War dramas look. Yeah. Like Tetris did. We yeah. mentioned this when we did Tetris on VGMP. It's everything's got that grayness to it, especially the outdoor scenes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this very much has that as well. Um, yeah, so it, I, I'll agree with you on that. There are, unlike Tetris though, which seem to be pretty drab throughout, this does have scenes where the colour pops up a lot more. I do see what you mean by they seem a little desaturated. Yeah. So that there's so no like there's no o- vivid yeah, colour. Like in her hotel, for example. There's a lot of red always and blues. has the purple hue from the purple lights in the ceiling. Does it? I thought it was red and blue her light her no, room. In her hotel there's always the there's the purple beams. I thought the purple and green was when she was in the club with... There was purple and green in the club. Oh, okay. But she has purple in her hotel room as well. Right. Um, it's like a weird patterned lighting. More of a pinky purple though, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it, yeah, it's not super saturated. No. But as I got used to that, um, I didn't mind it. So the first time I hated it. The fun thing is, I actually enjoyed the film the most the third time. Right. Interesting. Um, because the first time, as I say, I got bored and stopped watching it. Yep. The second time, I was really bored for the entire first half. Right. And then the film picked up when they try and get Spyglass out of the town. Yep. That picked up a bit for me then. Yeah. yeah. Um, this time, because I, I actually thought I'd be really bored this time because I only watched it last night. Mm. Um, but I actually didn't mind it. And... I paid a lot of attention to the cinematography as well, um, because what did occur to me when I rewatched it last night was I was watching it and I was thinking to myself, "Well, the film looks very good. the The shots are chosen very well. Um, it's all lit spe- very specifically. Everything feels deliberate. Yes, in it. Yeah, it doesn't Nothing. feel like they've just walked in with a camera and started shooting like yeah. an indie project. It's yeah. very professional. Nothing feels like it was left to chance. But as I was watching it, the thing that struck me was, yes, it looks pretty. But but actually, I remember very vividly this striking me, 
was I was about halfway through, I was like, hang on, do we know anything about who Lorraine is as a character? And I was like, I don't think we do. Why don't we learn anything about her other than the fact that she becomes an unreliable narrator? Yeah, this is and this is where the film suffers, I think. Mm. Um, She's your main linchpin. She's the like. If you, I, I know you're not a fan of the this film trilogy or series either, but like if you compare it to something like Indiana Jones, I know it's a completely different genre, but both have a similar thing where. Essentially, the main in for you in this story is your main character. They're your main protagonist, for one thing, but on top of just being your main protagonist, because it's not an ensemble piece, their charisma is what has to drive you all the way through it. And again, I know that Jamie is not a particular fan of Harrison Ford, but for me, something like um, Indiana Jones... Harrison Ford's charisma sells that film. Yeah. Like, you, you 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 pretty much follow the whole film because he's in it. And it's a better film because it's him. Whereas, with this, Charlize Theron's performance as the role, I'm not saying she's bad in it. She's a good actress. But her... Where she's... Her English accent is quite monotone. Mm. Um, there's not she's much cold. variation. She's and, very cold in the whole film. Yeah, her her personality is very cold, and there's not the closest she gets to any sort of heat is with uh, the other actress, uh, Sophia Batella. Yeah, but the, even that to me felt kind of forced and tacked in. Mm. Um, it didn't feel natural to the story. Yeah, and it, there's certainly no actual heat there because, again, even in those scenes where she's being intimate with this other person. She's constantly withholding everything. Mm. Um, and bear in mind, this is her... If we could go with the unreliable narrator thing that seems to come out in the film, this is her narrative she's weaving. Yeah. And in her own narrative she's weaving, she's weaving herself as quite bland. Um, if it's if you can make up any story about yourself and you're just going to bullshit it, certainly if you're going to bullshit yourself as being dumb enough to sleep with someone who is a potential threat yeah. and miss all the signs of the very obvious Percival twist you know the guy backstabbing you constantly even though you keep on telling yourself and the audience that you've guessed that this guy is not trustworthy then you've got to have some personality in there which suggests that she's either naive or that for whatever reason she just trusts him that she's got this vibe but that never comes up she seems to be constantly on the cold i can see yes i know you're bullshitting yes i can never show any emotion and then all of a sudden, oh, I've been deceived. She has no motivations of her own, does she? No, she she's there for the list. She has the mission. Yeah. And then once the mission's <clears throat> failed, another spoiler in this, I suppose, she loses Spyglass. Yeah. He dies, he drowns in, the, in, in a car in the bottom of a river. Um, after she loses the mission, then it's all about revenge. But even the revenge doesn't feel right either because like well this is a woman who's cold ass bitch like yeah. her whole thing has been that she's logic on the level there's no passion or heat or yeah. fire so the idea of revenge it just be like right okay mission's failed i know this guy did it i take him out and i go yeah. it would just be an assassination mission all of a sudden it's like no i must help the french girl that i slept with twice and do it it's like you wouldn't care like, the whole point of this character is that she doesn't care. Yeah, everything's an act with her. So, But um, all of a sudden, there's she's meant to feel the need for revenge, which yeah. is... I'm sorry, but that's a fiery point. You don't do a cold revenge. Like, you, 
You can revenge cold, I suppose. But revenge is a dish best served cold. But it's fueled by fire. You can be cold in the act. Yeah. But there's got to be some fuel underneath. Yeah. And I don't get any fuel from Theron's performance in this. Yeah. The character is too, in my opinion, the character is too bland. And I know what people are going to say. People are going to go, but you don't, you never learn anything about who James Bond is either. Yeah, I don't like James Bond films either. Mm. I'm not a fan of, like, I, I need a film. I need to know who my main character is. Yeah. But like, also, I'll give you a difference with this and Bond uh, on the other side of it is Bond doesn't pretend to, I mean, there are Bond films that have more of a, a spy, a natural spy element to them, mm. but they tend to have a bit more depth. Um, things like Skyfall tries to go into the backstory of who Bond is. Mm. Casino Royale is probably the best Bond film ever made, and it's about the development of that character. <laughs> I disagree, but we'll get to that. All right, well, that's time. that's another one we could do another time. But Daniel Craig's a terrible Bond. Okay, but he, uh, that story at least delves into the backstory of who Bond is, mm. how he becomes Bond. Yeah. So it's not just a case of, like, some of the... like It's not like a Roger Moore Bond, yeah. where it's just, this is Bond... On a platter, go. And even then, when you go to the Roger Moore Bonds and the Pierce Brosnan Bonds and even some of the Sean Connery Bonds, they know to keep the pressure on the action. Yeah. Atomic Blonde doesn't do that either. It spends a long time swanning around of, oh, but can you trust this person? I feel, like, this person? I feel like Atomic Blonde... And then back... all of a sudden it hits you with action when they yeah. try and get Spyglass out. Yeah, I feel like Atomic Blonde is a film of two halves mm. and the first half is very slow. Yeah. And very morose. They're trying to create a real Cold War spy thriller in the first half. Yeah, a real paranoid. Yeah, and then it just suddenly becomes a ball-to-the-wall action thriller Yeah, in as, the second it, half. But the as two... if they realised that the paranoia wasn't working. Yeah, but the problem is, is by just going straight to action, it didn't pay off the paranoia either. Yeah. So it, it didn't improve the paranoia plot. It was better. Uh... But there was also a, a, a stylistic shift, yeah. uh, which I noticed when... So, throughout the whole film, music is very much a big part of Atomic Blonde. Uh, it's a very stylish film, as I say, very much style over substance. And when they're in nightclubs, or even when they're not, there's a lot of diegetic and non-diegetic music yeah. applied throughout the film. Very much in that late 80s style, you know, very nostalgic. And yet, when it gets to the second half, once... Spyglass is gone, and uh, she decides on her will. Oh no! It's during the point where she's trying to save Spyglass. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's like this long, unbroken, one unbroken yeah. take, even though it's faked. But either way, well, well enough done. One yeah. unbroken take fight sequence. Yeah. But there's no music, and it's suddenly yeah. it's like gritty, hard action well, thriller. And it's like, hang on, but did it? Well, it just yeah. kind of slips away from the stylisticness yeah. of the we'll, first half. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to spend a bit of time talking about that. Sure. I just want to finish talking about the cinematography. Of first. course, sorry, man. Um, because it is a very good-looking film. Um, you know, some of some of my favorite shots in it are things like when she first wakes up in the ice bath at the beginning, and yep. she's in the bathroom with the view of misty early morning London. Yeah. through the window um, and when she's in the club meeting Sophia Butella as well um, and they've got like that red light on them you've got the red light and um, then there's like a flashing blue neon that lights up the bottom half of their faces yeah. that's um, really stylish yeah like that. that's really good um, 
the first time she meets Sofia Boutella as well, when when Bremachev comes up to flirt with her. Yes. And then uh, Sofia Boutella, who plays Delphine LaSalle, um, who is a French agent, when she comes up, that's... I, I really like the way the film is shot. Um, it just... I have some problems with the way it's shot in some moments. Um, talking about the first big action sequence, not the first one, because the first one, I guess, is in the car when she first gets to Berlin. Yeah. Uh, I guess the second one. I'm talking about the one in the apartment where she's got the hose. Oh, right, and she's fighting the police. And she's fighting them with the hose, and then she swings out the window. Yeah. There are moments in that fight where... So I actually watched a video about how they made that fight scene, and they've basically took frame dropping to the extreme. So you know the you know the editor's trick of dropping a frame just before the punch connects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've dropped like fifty frames or something like that. There's only twenty four a second. So that's I what I'm that, saying. But... They've dropped loads, like more than a second's worth of frames. Really? Not not literally, oh, but God. that's what I'm saying. And they actually show you. It's quite cool. Um, there's a bit where she snaps a gun out of someone's hand with the thing, and they show you how in the edit it goes from him having the gun in his hand to it already being several inches out of his hand. Right. And that middle bit of it actually coming out of the hand is missing. Oh, they just chopped it. They've chopped it to make it seem more snappy and frenetic. Right. And that works sometimes, but then there's other bits, like the one that I always think looks bad is when she, uh, she's got these two of the cops and she wraps the... Uh, the hose around one of the necks pulls him backwards and he like snaps to the ground like he's been fucking stone cold stunned yeah and his feet kick up and he kicks the other one in the chin yeah the way his body snaps down so fast because they've cut frames yeah makes it look cgi to me yeah which it's not apparently right same when they go through uh, she throws a guy through a coffee table Yes, that one looked really CGI. It did, but it's not. They rigged they rigged the table with explosives. Right. Because he was saying that glass doesn't actually break in an interesting way most of the time. No, it doesn't. Usually right. it breaks and falls straight away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they wanted it to explode. Right. So it's And if you look closely, I think the explosion triggers just before he lands on the table. Okay. Um, How did they trigger an explosion without hurting the actor? Uh, so apparently it was little... Um, I am very tired, so I can't remember what they're called. Limpets, is it? No, limpet mines something else. The there's a thing in film that they use, like a little blast cap thing. Oh, okay. Um, what's what I'm gonna call squib? A squib, right? Um, they put those in the corners of the glass table, and they literally triggered it remotely with a detonator. Very nice. Okay. Um, but I I think they triggered it slightly too early. Early. I mean, I didn't notice it triggering too early. Um, but I think that's what gives it the CGI look. Right. Because I think your brain... I don't think you notice it, but I think your brain goes, that wasn't quite right. Right. It's very possible, because it's... This is one of the things about cinematography that I find fascinating, and um, also why it's important as a director to really carefully pick your shots. Because uh, everything you film, whether you intend it to or not, will say something... Mm. Like, which direction your actor is facing will say something to your audience. And they're not going to sit there, not necessarily, like, ordinary audience aren't going to sit there and go, well, he's facing left, and he's at three quarters from the top right. So that actually says... They're not going to be processing it consciously, uh, consciously, 
but their mind will capture whatever it is that's on that screen and will process it a similar way. This part of the human experience. We process things in a very similar way on a subconscious level. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, it, it's why psychology is very important in the way that filmmaking and cinematography is uh, constructed. Uh, within this... Uh, if something is off, as you say, that there's that few seconds or milliseconds of variance that make it unrealistic. Even if you don't consciously grab it, your subconscious will sit there and go, the fuck? <laughs> There'll just be something you know is off. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And we talked about music as well. And music was a weird one for me. Cause I, think, I feel that the music's used really weirdly in this film. Yeah. Because there's bits where, like, when she first gets to, not the club, not the nightclub, but the place she goes before that, the bar where she talks to Bremovet. Yeah, yeah. Bremachev? Bremovich? Bremovich, yes. Where she talks to Bremovich and then meets Sofia Batella. Um, she arrives and it's playing music on the soundtrack. Like a bright, poppy, yeah. bum, 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 bum sort of thing. And logic tells you that is the music that's playing in the club because it starts when the scene starts. She arrives at a club. It seems to be diegetic sound. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, when he offers her the cigarette lighter, that music stops and we actually realise that was non-diegetic and the actual diegetic sound is much more classical, less interfering, just background noise. Yeah. And that's kind of jarring, I find, because you're like... What? Hang on. What? Yeah. What? Is, is she? Yeah. And what? Here's the thing with the whole idea of the false narrator or the the unreliable narrator. Sorry, um, that is shown at the end of the film. They could have played on stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like they could have been certain points where they're like, "Are you sure what you're saying makes sense?" Like where with Toby or um, John, John Goodman, yeah, or Toby Maguire, Toby Jones. <laughs> uh, so if Toby Jones or John Goodman were like, "That doesn't sound right," it's like, "No, no, it was this." Mm. And like, if there was little, just like one or two hints throughout the story where she'd be like, "No, you're right, I got the details wrong on that." Yeah. Then it would make sense that little things would suddenly change, and they'd be like, "Hang on, wasn't it this before?" Yeah, yeah. you're right. Sorry. So then, carrying on with my story, um, I'll tell you what a good example actually is, and when it comes to telling a story with an unreliable narrator, um, and I mentioned this on the Goodfellas one, <laughs> I know I did, um, but I watched uh, the uh, film by. What's it called? By Beat No, no, no. The gangster one uh, by the British guy. Oh, um, by Guy Ritchie. Yeah. Uh, he's on a few. Lock, no, stock and... No, there was one I mentioned specifically. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. No, no, no. Rock no. and roller. No. Uh, the one with um, Charlie Hunnam in it. Oh, The Gentleman. The gentleman. So, <clears throat> when I watched The Gentleman, Hugh Grant's character in that... <clears throat> Pardon me. Hugh Grant's character in that spins a yarn, mm. uh, but it's fascinating the way he explains his story. 
because it's like they, there's a lot of energy in it. It's like, oh. when you think about it like this, or when you got this, and it's like he spins the story, and there's bits where he I'm gets the details wrong. I'm definitely remembering that film wrong then. Yeah, because I thought it was the other way around. I thought he was being told the story. No, he's telling Charlie Hunnam the story. Because I know the famous line in it that was in the trailer is him going, tell me a story, Raymond. Go on, tell yeah, me a Yeah, he does. Story. So there's there, he does have that line. Yeah. But there's um, he then tells Raymond the story. Right. But yeah, when he's telling the story, there's bits where he's like, and then this happened, and then he shot the guy in the head and he's like that's not how it happened i was in the room just now nah, just making sure you're staying awake you know there's little things he does to sow in the seed that he's not a reliable narrator yeah. throughout that story uh, there's also a lot more in- interest in the way that a he performs it and b uh that they throw not things where he talks about script writing <laughs> and say that's a little bit of guy richie indulging himself in a character but yeah. i did find it interesting like funny and interesting yeah and he's sitting there going no 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 you've got to set the scene you've got to do this think about the script raymond that you need to do this i always found that hilarious there is none of that sort of personality in uh the atomic blonde of this story mm. um but also there's none of those breadcrumbs no. On the unreliable narrator, it's kind of just thrown slam in your face I, right I, at the end. Yeah, I could give it a couple of hints that may have been hints um, looking back. But even then, I think you're stretching a little bit. I mean, the only one I can think of was the... what I, I, I honestly think it was just a production mistake uh, or a, something I forgot in the visual effects department more so, uh, was... During the chase sequence when she's driving the car mm. with Spyglass yeah. to escape, uh, there's a pol- I think the police or it might be KGB or someone after her, uh, but as she's trying to drive away, she manages to, um, one of the trucks following her gets hit by a big lorry, and flips. flips over, smashes and lands in the middle of the road. Yeah. And then she continues driving forwards, has to stop at the next junction because another car comes out. She hits reverse, and it's all done in one unbroken take. The camera then turns back around and looks out the rear window. No sign of the car that first crashed. Completely missing. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that could be a sign of an unreliable narrator, but it's never picked up on by any of the characters. I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking of the bit when, um, after she's first hooked up with Sophia Batella, and they're saying to her, what did she tell? Because she says, I've got information for you. Yes, she does. And we see her whispering Charlie, Charlie Theron's ear. Yeah. Um, and John Goodman, Terry Jones, going, what did she give you? What did she give you? And she lies, doesn't she? And says, she gave me nothing. Yeah. Um, so there is that. The film does have... Um, it makes times, no sense that she told them that story, no matter which way. If she was being honest, why would you go, yeah, I pounded this woman yeah. that I met in a club. Right, what did you get of her? Nothing. All right, what was the point in that? Or if she's spinning a yarn, it added nothing to the yarn. No. (laughs) It was just, yeah, I crushed this girl. See you later. So the film does have, (laughs) at times, it does have a bit of a very sly, almost sarky sense of humour. Yeah. Um, You get things like um, when David uh, Percival is first introduced to the film... Is after Charlie Theron has flipped the car. Yes. And he's like, please don't shoot me. I've got your shoe. Yeah. His uh, character's the one of the more fun characters. Though. Yeah. My personal favourite joke in the film is when she's telling the story of how she hooked up with LaSalle. 
and you get the the lesbican sex scene. <laughs> lesbican. And then, and then it just cuts back to Toby Jones in the room um, interviewing her, and he's kind of not looking at her anymore because yeah. he's almost embarrassed. Yeah. And he just goes, so you made contact with the French agent. <laughs> that was funny. And Charlie Sarah just goes, obviously. <laughs> We've literally just seen her rubbing her vagina. All right. And it's, you made contact with the French agent? <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> that was quite smart. I like yeah, that. I liked that. That was. I wouldn't say smart necessarily, no. but humorous. Humorous. Uh, but anyway, so we, we 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 jump ahead now, and we get to um, where the film ramps up in action, which is the operation to get Spyglass out of the city. Yeah. And at this point, as if you couldn't tell already, this is the point where we really truly realise that you can't trust David Percival. Yeah. Because. He is constantly changing the plan. First of all, he tells Charlize Theron not to bring a gun. Yep. He's like, oh, you won't need that. But she takes one anyway. Then, all of a sudden, it turns out he's arranged not just for Spyglass to get out of the city. But Spyglass's family. Yeah, his wife and daughter. And you get that line that gets called back to later where she goes, this isn't part of the plan. And he goes, it's part of my plan. Yeah. Later on, when they're actually marching, because they're, they're marching through a protest using the protesters cover um and there is a sniper a kgb sniper waiting to take out spyglass yep but charlie staring gets uh bill skarsgård's character to whistle and that's a signal for all their friends to put their umbrellas up yep blocking the sniper shot and you get a call back there where she where this time james mcavoy goes this wasn't part of the plan and she goes, it's part of my plan. Yeah. Um, at that point, James McAvoy splits away from the main group with the wife and daughter yep. to get into a car, but decides to take the shot. Seeing that the sniper can't see, yeah. he takes the shot and wounds in the stomach. Spyglass. Spyglass. And this kind of kicks off then what becomes a lot, quite a long action sequence. At least sequence, 10 minutes. Um, that is designed to look like it's one unbroken take. It isn't. You can tell, if you know what you're looking for, you can tell that there are cuts hidden. Um, I can't blame them for that. Doing no. something, doing something this big that moves through this many locations with this many extras and this many stunts as an unbroken take would be nearly impossible. Mm. Um, but you ba- need months just on the one shot. Yeah. But the long and short of it is um, that Lorraine takes Spyglass to what looks like an abandoned apartment building. Because um, they certainly know when they're crashing into the different apartments, they certainly never crash in on a random family. Just like, oh my God, what's going on here? Yeah, everything's empty. They're all yeah. on the streets, I think, complaining. Might that, be the idea. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, maybe they're all on the streets. Um, and this is a scene that I think most people have probably seen, which is the famous staircase fight scene. Yes, with um, the uh, Disco Stew mm. and the Party Viking. Yes, uh, two henchmen. <laughs> and this is a... So, taken as a scene on its own, without the wider context of the film, it's a very good scene. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, I, I thought it was really, really well done. It's It, it feels appropriately movie-ish mm. in the sense that some of the moves are a little bit like, is that what you would do in this or would you just be swinging your fists? 
but it also doesn't feel overblown. It feels realistic enough mm. that you can believe it. The people take damage as they fight. There's a lot of people falling downstairs, which is very visceral. Yeah. It's like they fall hard. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's not just like a simple, oh, I'm a stuntman bouncing down some stairs. It looks like it hurts. Yeah. And even at the end of this bit, before we get to the end of the actual action scene, Charlie Theron is looking very beat up. That is one thing I will say of this as well. Very unlike a lot of modern female-led action movies. She takes fucking damage. It feels realistic. I know there was a lot of people, a lot of... um, A certain type of crowd, shall we say, who slagged off Atomic Blonde and were like... Um, it's actually totally unrealistic that a female would be able to beat up men that size. Right, first of all, it's not realistic. It's a fucking Cold War spy thriller. Yeah, it's, it's not based movie. on a true story either. No, it's a movie, people. If Tetris can do a KGB escape dry- car, dry- car yeah. race, then this can do one woman beating up loads of guys. Yeah. And again, she's not like standard woman. She's meant she's to be a professionally trained... Double agent. Yeah. But even so, the fight, it it feels realistic for the most part. Yeah. Like, she isn't going and, like, lifting these men and stuff like that. Um, A lot of... She mostly uses their weight against them, doesn't she? Yeah, that's the thing. She's mostly turning them on themselves. She does a lot of judo flips, Mm. um, where she's carrying their own momentum over her shoulder. She's getting them to shoot each other by pulling their guns through behind her so that they shoot each other. Yeah, she tricks them into shooting each other a lot. Um, But as you say, putting in with the rest of the movie, it feels a bit disjointed because... The, all of a sudden, there's no music when every other sequence has had music. It's purely diegetic sound. Yeah. Um, and it does feel a little weird in contrast with the rest of the movie. Because it's like the style just disappeared. I yeah. When I say style, the style I mean, changes. Ter- yeah, yeah, in terms it's of its the, audio. It, yeah, it's not that it becomes no... Because it's still a very stylized fight scene. No, no, but I'm talking but about the audio. Because the, it... The, yeah, you're right, because visually it's the same style as the rest of the film has been. But audio-wise, it just disappears into being reality, quote-unquote. Mm. You know, there's no there's no additional flex thrown in. Yeah. Like, as you say, in the nightclub, there's two different flipping music tracks going on. You yeah. hear this pop track, and then all of a sudden she, get, take, she lights a cigarette, and it's classical. Yeah. And there's no explanation as to why the sound would change that radically. Um, whereas with this, there's not even like you know a a, a heartbeaty soundtrack yeah. to go with the action. It's like no, knock that out. We're doing a hundred percent realism with the sound. But except for the Wilhelm scream, but that was earlier, wasn't it? That was earlier. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention the Wilhelm scream is in this film. Hooray! I'm always, I'm always a fan of finding the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. Um. So after she gets through the actual staircase fight, she ends up in an apartment with the guy, one of the guys who's been a recurring henchman throughout the film. Yes. Which is the guy with the shaved back and sides and the long blonde hair on top. Yeah, I don't uh, know where I've seen him before because I couldn't find him on the IMDb page for this film. Oh, really? Yeah, I couldn't find him, but it might be just because it wasn't loading properly. Maybe. Um But I've seen him in something else and I'm like, I know this guy. <laughs> where, the, yeah. where the hell do I know him? I'm actually wondering if he's... He might be in the Tekken movie. Oh, yeah? He might be the villain in the Tekken movie. 
I could be wrong on that, though. I would have to double-check. I think he might be the villain in the second movie. Okay. The live-action one. But this um, this part of the fight, it's still... He broke. is the villain in the, in the live-action second movie. Right. <laughs> yes, he is. There we go. Carry on. Um, this part of the fight, it's still brutal. It still feels largely realistic. There were a couple of bits that didn't. There's a bit when she sticks a corkscrew in his armpit. Then he's choking her. Yeah. And she pulls the corkscrew out and stabs it into his face a couple of times in quick succession. Yeah. That felt, something about that didn't work for me. Mm. That felt very much like she clearly isn't sticking that in his face. Yeah, I think it's, just... it's his lack of reaction. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, if you've got a corkscrew, you think she gets him in the eye at one point. I think that's the implication. Yeah, but... And they all d- he like, does he d- is put his hand on his eye. Yeah, like, just like, oh. oh, that's a bit painful. That's a sting. It's like, nah. No, that yeah, would be your eyeball would be destroyed. Yeah, you would be screaming. Le-pop. I don't care how hard you are, you'd be screaming. Oh yeah, if your fucking eye got destroyed by a corkscrew. Yeah, yeah, you'd Pull be screaming. Out. There's, um, you wouldn't be sitting there going, "Oh, woman yeah. gives me a problem." <laughs> but I, I, it's a very good action. You know, I've never seen John Wick, but I understand John Wick action is very similar to that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, in the first, the first one more so that it, it got a lo- little, lo- it got a lot more stylized in the sequels. Right. Okay. Um, because I'm guessing because this director wasn't on it. Um, but yeah, the I didn't like John Wick three because it got ridiculous. Like the whole point of John Wick one was that there was no CGI in the fight scenes. Right. John Wick three, it's almost all CGI. Oh really? It's rubbish. Like they, they, there's a whole bit where they're having a fight on while well, riding super speed motorbikes, mm. and you can see they're all CGI. People are like the action's amazing, isn't it? I'm like, no, no, I don't like CGI fight scenes. Yeah, um, which is why I will give praise on the fight scenes to this film. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I read online apparently at one point the the director was considering or was questioned about i can't remember which um a john wick atomic blonde crossover movie which is all well and good except i believe i believe john wick is set present day yeah so atomic blonde is set 1989 so the only way you could i mean john wick is already retired by the time we meet him in the first john wick so um it's possible they could have done like john wick at in the 90s yeah. A few years after the arrangements of Atomic Blonde, like 94, 95, yeah. and you would have seen John Wick in his prime with the Atomic Blonde, yeah. that would have been possible. Yeah, but, but would you still be able to have it be Keanu if you did that? I mean, if I mean, they make him look old and raggedy a little bit in the film, so they could have probably youthed him up a bit. Yeah. I'm not saying that's necessarily a good idea, but I reckon that's probably what they could have done yeah. if they were to go ahead with the concept. Um, I don't see that there's a point, though, at this point, because Atomic no. Blonde didn't sell that well, I would have thought. Um, I did look up its... Uh, it's not It's not, uh, It's not. not in the It's not in the zeitgeist in the way that John Wick is. No, although it is getting a sequel. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but the sequel is a Netflix exclusive, which uh, kind of dampens the excitement a bit, doesn't it? Well, they normally cancel after a sequel anyway, and they're, so they're, if they're starting on the sequel, it's only getting the one. Well, yeah... It's going to be a movie, not a series. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, Netflix series. You're right. They at most make it to two. Yeah. And then it's like, bye-bye. I'm just going to check. So I think you're right. I don't think it was massively successful. I think it just scraped, scraped a profit, I think. Yeah. Uh, let's have a look here. So its budget 
Oh no, it actually did really well. Oh, I'm wrong. Its budget was thirteen million dollars. Thirteen. Thirty. Okay, that's still quite relatively low budget yeah. for a movie this time. And it made a hundred million dollars. Yeah, yeah, successive. <laughs> um, generally positively received by critics. Um, and yeah, commonly compared to John Wick. I don't think there's any need to do a uh, to do a tie in either, given that John Wick itself is now. Bim, I've never seen any of them, but obviously you, I keep up to date with film mm. news. Uh, John Wick is getting a bunch of spin-offs of its own anyway. Yeah. So that universe is already getting big enough because they're doing the ballerina spin-off, aren't they, with Anadarmus? Right. Um, I don't really know much about the spin-offs. Yeah, they're doing a spin-off called Ballerina with Anadarmus. Right. Which uh, could be cool, possibly. I don't know. I've never seen John Wick. I don't know what the universe is, is like. To Black Swan. Ballerina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this is then the point where, as you say, uh, Spyglass ends up dying. You've got the magical disappearing truck that you were on about. Yep. Um, and then we get into... So before we get into the multiple endings, the actual climax of the film really mm. is this sequence where David Percival murders Delphine LaSalle. Yep. And is then confronted by Lorraine Broughton. I think you can say Lorraine Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a sequence. I actually quite like this sequence. Yeah. Um, although, again, it feels like a little bit of a tonal shift. Because what has been a relatively serious film... Daniel Percival is just a lot more bumbling than I expected him to be. Yeah, I mean, he gets the drop on her. She doesn't know he's coming. She's listening to music. This like, is on Delphine a... LaSalle, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. So Delphine LaSalle is listening to headphones, music really loud on headphones. In her underwear. In her underwear. So obviously That's not expecting... That's the key detail here. Yeah, well, it is. But also, obviously not expecting him to arrive. Mm. He then arrives, she sort of gets this chill down her spine, like, oh my God, it's, something's about to happen. And he could have just shot her. Yeah, he said he tries to garrot her, doesn't he? Yeah, so and because he tries to garrot her, she kicks the shit out of him and ends he ends up there's quite a funny bit where she stabs him in the back with his own knife. Yeah. And then when he gets he after he tries to suffocate her a bit more, he steps back, hits his back on the door. It's frame. almost as if he goes to it's almost as if he forgets there's a knife in his back and he goes to lean against the door frame. Yeah. And pushes the knife in deep and he's like, ah shit. Yeah. Um But it kind of I know why they did it. I don't like that they did it, but I know why they did it. They did it because they didn't want to make it seem like um, Delphine was that much of a twat to be so easily offed after she was meant to be, you know, emotionally connected to the atomic blonde. Maybe I'm not. But, sure, I'm not personally sure that's what it was because I mean they had already established much earlier to the point where they even outright say it. I think it's Toby Jones that has the line. They outright say she's completely out of her depth. She admits it herself just before, after she has the first kiss with. No, Charlie's I know, head. but then they try. They obviously try and give her some redemption in the fact that she puts up a good fight. Well, her against redemp- a man who's got every advantage. To on be it. fair, her redemption is she, she is the without her. Charlie Theron's plan doesn't work no, because yeah. she takes the incriminating photo that allows her to do what she does by framing Percival as yeah. Satchel. Yeah, yeah, but um, the point is, is that like it's there to reframe that character because she's considered considered bumbling out yeah. of her depth. 
but she is taking the photos that eventually help Charlie Theron. But yeah. that should have been the redemption. Instead, they also try and give her a secondary redemption mm. by having her be a match for Percival when he gets to jump on her. Yeah, although I, I am thinking about it, and actually that I, it isn't as out of character for Percival as I perhaps thought, because when you actually think back to the whole film... Percival is not coordinated like Charlize Theron is. He is very lackadaisical. Every time you see him, uh, if you think about it, every time you see him, he's always lounging in his sofa, isn't he, with his legs dangling off the end. Yeah, but um, he's he's that's that's his that's his play. She even calls that out. Yeah, because she says, you know, I don't believe all this sort of lazy, True. not getting up on time. And we find out because he's like, you know, he's he's broken his arm. He's got it in a cast, mm. and it turns out that that's all just bullshit. He's just got a wire yeah. in there, and it was a way for him to hide a wire. Um, you know, he's actually quite thoughtful and quite yeah. forward thinking. For me, the so bit... for him to suddenly become a bumbling buffoon, yeah. well, and it also ex- ex- extends the le- uh, the length of the film unnecessarily. Mm. He should have come in, shot her in the head, mm. and got away with it because um, him being stabbed by the knife and having the fight makes no difference mm. to the what the following scene with him when yeah. he eventually gets killed by the atomic blonde. Yeah, it makes no difference except yeah. for that he's you know got a bit of a limp. Yeah, but it's that makes no difference to the scene. Yeah, um, and it, it weirdly goes into like a first person narration, doesn't it, leading up to his death? Yeah, um, where he's talking about his time in Berlin, and he ends it with um, the only thing I've learned is I fucking love Berlin, yeah. and um, then she shoots him. Um, for me, the bit that was really out of character for Percival, because it, it just seemed to come out of nowhere for me was just before he kills LaSalle, he's always, like we said, he's done this whole bumbling thing for the whole film. He is talking to John Goodman's character, and he says he, he says that this Italian girl once told him, um, oh, that's it, so John Goodman tells him that Lorraine has survived, because he thinks Lorraine has drowned, yeah. along with Spyglass, and, and he wants to abandon the search for the list. When John Goodman tells him she's still alive, he says, oh, this Italian girl once said to me, David, you can't unfuck what's already been fucked. And then he sort of snorts himself and goes, women are always getting in the way of progress, aren't they? Why that felt really out of character. That was really forced in there. I think that that seemed to be a big pro-feministy or, you know... He that makes that's for a feminist to go. Oh yeah, you know that he's a typical guy. Yeah, it felt like it was but just it there to make us be like boo hiss. Yeah, yeah. It it didn't. His character didn't seem to project that at any other time. No, there was. Yeah, it didn't feel at all consistent with the character because he did respect her. Mm. He, you know, he, he. That's why he said it. You know, trying to double cross the double crosser. So he respected yeah. her game and was always, even if he was surprised by her, he always knew that she had the capacity to screw him. Yeah. So it's not that he thought women were bumbling, rubbish, useless twats, because he didn't think that of the atomic blonde. No. So, but all of a sudden in this scene, it's just like women getting in the way of progress. Again, though, all of those lines from Percival come from the perspective of the unreliable narrator that is the atomic blonde. True. So it's possible he never said any of them. It's very possible Percival was a hundred percent loyal to the cause. That is true. Although I, I have to admit, I don't think this film is that intelligent to be honest but that's yeah that's what i mean it's it it's why it felt weird for them to throw in 
the double cross that she had been like it makes sense for her to be a double crosser working for the cia mm. but not necessarily one who had been working actually she is satchel is yeah. the reveal that made no sense because of the way that she played everything doesn't make it doesn't it doesn't add up yeah um yeah um but if, if you're gonna do that you should make it damn smart yeah I feel like the film, as we said right at the beginning, it, it's style over substance. I, I kept thinking that the, the sentence that kept going through my head was, this looks very pretty, but why should I care? Yeah. Because there are no characters I cared about. I like Percival. I cared about Percival. Like, liked, but did you care about him? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I liked him enough to care about him. Um, I wanted you to liked see the sexist. <laughs> yeah, because weirdly enough, he was the most on, on, he was the most honest character in it. Because he, whatever you saw, was kind of there, and you knew he was fucking you over, and he didn't make any bones about the fact he was fucking you over. Yeah, he he came across honest in his deception. Yeah, very much like Garrick from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. You know, he's... You always find a way to get it in there. Well, it says you with Doctor Who, but... I've got all episode without Doctor Who. That's true. But, but my now point I'll, is... Now I'll mention that Toby Jones was in Doctor Who. He so. was indeed. But, yeah, it's, there's the line from Garrick in Deep Space Nine where he goes... Um, he's said multiple stories about his background that don't connect. And uh, this character goes, Garrick, like, all I want to know is, which of the stories were true? My dear Doctor, they're all true. Even the lies, especially the lies. That was very much Percival for me. Mm. He's a guy who was like, all of it's bloody true and all of it's bollocks. Yeah. I like that. Um, so, yeah, I did I did kind of connect on that character. I feel like uh, LaSalle is a very honest character as well. She openly admits, and that is her downfall, is she's yeah. too naive. Yeah, because she calls Percival up to, to go, oh, screw you, you know, I know you're full of shit. Blah, blah, yeah. It's like, well, you've just signed your own death warrant, love. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, she should have just fled. Yeah. Rather than letting him know yeah, that she I'm was Yeah, I'm going to get my revenge him. on you, son. It's like, mate, you've just killed yourself. Like, yeah. You're an idiot. You're dead, Sheriff. <laughs> you're dead. Um, okay, so... We've come to sort of the end of the main film. Yeah, yeah. And we obviously like to look back and say has our opinions changed and i guess i have to say it has okay in the sense that i made it through the film twice now and i didn't even make it through the first time yeah um it's grown on you enough to watch it yeah it's not something i particularly want to watch again maybe 10 years down the line if someone's like oh let's watch atomic blonde i'll be like yeah all right um because it, it looks good it but I need more than that. I yeah. would, to be honest, I've always been of the opinion, obviously in a perfect world, you want every aspect of the film to be great in a perfect world. But I've always been of the opinion, I would rather watch a bad looking film that has an engaging and gripping story than a film that looks beautiful, but feels hollow. I think I'd agree with you on that because that's the main reason why I don't like Avatar. Mm. It's absolutely gorgeous. Fucking empty as hell. 
nothing to say. Uh, yeah, save your avatar bashing for avatar. Well, you know, that, yeah, but that that's me just agreeing with your point. You're doing spoilers like a year ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, there'll be plenty enough to say by the time we get around <laughs> Avatar anyway. Um, um, how how was your first viewing experience of Atomica Blonde? I didn't hate it. Um, the ending, I was like, well, hang on, what's going on now? What, like, what the fuck? Um, so the ending was confusing for a first time watch. Uh, but the rest of it was fairly straightforward. Fairly enjoyable, very stylish. More enjoyable than Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's more stylish than Goodfellas. Yeah, look. Um, I'll give you that. It yeah. looks. But I mean, it's that's a bit unfair in a couple of ways because a Goodfellas is based on a true story mm. rather than being, uh, you know, this could do whatever it wanted because it didn't even have to be accurate to the facts. Yeah, Goodfellas. If they went well, then Robert De Niro becomes a cyborg. You'd be like, uh, what? Best you know, film. <laughs> best film. Robert Be- De Niro, the gangster cy- uh, cyborg. First two thirds, it's just a straight gangster film. And then halfway, no, no, it should have been Joe Pesci. That's it. After they kill Joe Pesci, uh, the film loses something, like you said. <laughs> and then at some point, they're just like... Robo Pesci. Uh, Robo Pesci gets <laughs> unveiled. And he's just like, what do you mean? I am a clown. Do I amuse you? <laughs> but yeah, uh... There's... Yeah, I did enjoy it more. It was a more fun film. Mm. Again, that's not really fair comparison because Goodfellas, again, not, not designed to be, to be fun super fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm going to ignore the comparison with Goodfellas and just carry on my point. Uh, the It's a fun film. It's enjoyable enough. I probably would watch it again at some point. Um, I just... I lament the fact that it had several ideas that could have led to a much more intelligent story. And it didn't go the route. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it dropped the ball. Like the, the whole idea of the unreliable narrator, brilliant. The, mm. But it was not really utilised except for yeah. a really tacky ending. Do you, Do we think, is there any hope that Atomic Blonde 2 will actually be good? It depends. It, is, there, it, is there an interesting story to be told with this character? Because I guess your options are flesh out the character in the second one yeah or they or do what you've done here where every other character around her is more fleshed out and she's so, almost an empty vehicle for the audience i would i could see it working either way mm. um however if it's going to go down a similar route as this one in order to be better um whether or not charlie's theron's atomic blonde it herself becomes a more sort of three-dimensional character or whether we stick with three-dimensional characters surrounding that pastiche mm. of a Cold War uh, double agent. No matter which way you go up, and she could probably do that now because since we know she's American anyway, she can just go back to her American accent for a sequel. Yeah, it'd be really weird if she went British. Again, yeah, it's like, why are you still British? Uh, but... The one thing it would need, if it's going to follow in the similar footsteps as the first one, knowing now that they've got this unreliable narrator theme going on, the script needs to be smarter. Yeah. You know, the the action was fine. The style was fine. The thing that lets this down is that the script wasn't clever enough with the themes that it had. Um. And yeah, so that, that would be my main thing that I'd want to see from a sequel. Yeah. I would watch it. Um. But I'd be very disappointed if it was as dumb as this film was. Mm. You know, and I say that there's some smart ideas in this film, but 
as I said, didn't pull off properly, so... Yeah, it, it definitely has a vacuousness to it. Yeah. But, still, we've we've been nice to it as well, because we have said it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. Um, it, it certainly seems like Jonathan Seller and David Leach have a very good working relationship. Yeah. Because uh, if you look them up, they've worked together six times, I think I said. Okay. Um, good friends. Yeah, <laughs> no work colleagues probably, but still. Um, I imagine you. I imagine there must be a friendship there if they're bringing if he's bringing him back six times. Yeah, uh, mm. either that or a very tight working relationship. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I think we've been fair to the film. We haven't come in being like this is garbage, it's trash. We've been fair. We've said how beautiful the film looks and how much we like the cinematography. Um, do you have anything you would else you would like to say about Atomic Blonde? No, no, just it's a good film. It's probably worth a one-off look if you're into spy thrillers, but just don't just set your expectations on the intelligence side a bit lower and go yeah, for the fun. It's definitely not the best in its genre. No, far from it. Um, but not a bad waste of two hours of your life. No. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Uh, that is it for another episode of Second Take Cinema. Remember, you can uh, find us on all good podcasting apps. Please, pretty please, if you like the show, leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. It really helps us with uh, the algorithms and being more visible. If you'd like to hear more of mine and Rostifer's thoughts on uh, movies, and you don't mind trash movies... Not all uh, trash. Nearly all trash. Not all 98%. Trash. No. Uh, you can also catch us every other week on VGMP, the video game movie podcast, where we talk about movies and shows that have been adapted from popular video games, or that are part of a culture based around gaming. Uh, some of our best episodes you can catch on there are things such as our recent episode talking about the new Super Mario Brothers movie, or Tetris, the or Tetris, the origins of the Tetris video game, or dig deep in our back catalogue and hear us get really wild as we cast the Doom porno, um, or talk about <laughs> Resident Evil, or dear lord, Uwe Boll's most important movie, Postal. Oh, God. That's his, that's his line, not ours, by the way. Oh, yeah. He says it's his most important film. You can also catch us, if you want to hear some fiction work from us, you can catch Haunted the Audio Drama, releasing every Sunday at 6pm, currently in its second season. Uh, it's sort of a Doctor Who X-Files type show that has a long-running storyline uh, created by myself, uh, stars me as uh, James Hunter, one of the three main characters, also got Rory as a recurring guest character, Woo! Preston Connors, he's also a guest writer in season two, along with my co-producer, co-writer, editor, and also frequent co-star Benton Hodges. You can catch that by searching Haunted the Audio Drama on any podcast app of your choice. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap on Atomic Blonde. We will see you next time for more Second Take Cinema.